Welcome to The Eventful Entrepreneur. I'm Roger Woodall, founder of the Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sport and music festival. With all events in 2020 grinding to a halt, I'll be bringing people back together, but in a different way. Hello and welcome to episode four of the Eventful Entrepreneur podcast. This is a follow-up to episode one, Eventful Beginning. So if you haven't already, I'd recommend going back and giving that a listen first. I'm producer Dan and I'm here with the Eventful Entrepreneur himself, Mr. Roger Woodall. How are you, Dodge? I'm very good, mate. Very good. Good. Good to be back. Always nice to be back in the studio. Very new, but I'm enjoying it. Great. Uh, so, so in episode one, we talked about your your childhood, some early forays into business, uh, the nightclub scene, and all the way up to 2008 when you, you came up with the idea and launched Bournemouth Sevens. What's the reaction been like so far? The reaction's been amazing. I've actually been blown away. The uh, The reviews have been huge five stars with loads of lovely comments, um, loads of messages, private messages, WhatsApps. I'm blown away. I literally didn't think this was going to happen. At all. I had no preconceived conception of anything that was going to happen, to be honest with you, but feeling feels great. It feels really, really humbling, and uh, there's a lot of very kind people out there. How have friends and family reacted to hearing stories from uh, those early days oh, and later on? Oh, they've cracked up. Honestly, <laughs> mum, dad, sister, they, they've cracked up. Friends and who have been part of that journey, you know, whether it's the nightclub world, whether it's living in pubs or whatever. Yeah, it was. Uh, it's been it's been a great it's been a great time to look back and and reflect personally, and also people around me have gone back and forgotten about those times, and it's just brought up great. Uh, Great reactions and memories again. Yeah, it's been a really nice exercise in kind of reflection, I think, which is good. Uh, but before we get stuck into the next steps of, of your journey, I'd like to ask a quick listener question, if it's all right with you. Yeah, far away. <laughs> oh, God, what's going to happen? I'm here? going to ask it if you want me to anyway. So. <laughs> far away, see what happens. Uh, we've been contacted by people asking to dig a little deeper into a very important part of your life, uh, an important part of your story as well. Uh, so put simply, tell us more about the monkey. <laughs> Oh god, and you know, obviously, in the last episode, um, Dad loves that, loved his animals, and uh, we had a pet monkey, and it was a squirrel monkey. You know, don't uh, don't picture it as some huge big ape running around a, a two bed flat living above a pub. Um, it's a squirrel monkey with a little yellow face, cute as, um, called Mitzi, um, and used to feed it with a little teaspoon of of, of milk and. Uh, we had some real fun. That was what, one of the main questions, actually. What do you feed a monkey? Yeah, you feed it all sorts, to be honest with you. But you know, it was really funny. They'd actually, we had this little electric fire in the, in the living room upstairs and uh, we'd wash the monkey in the morning or wash the monkey whenever, to be honest with you. And then in the wintertime, it would, the monkey would stand. So if you imagine you're standing in front of the fire and he puts his arms in the air and his legs spread out, drying himself off and shaking his <laughs> bum. Like, <laughs> right, yeah, good, good times. And did, it get, uh, did Mitzi get on with all the other animals or...? Well, there was all sorts going on. In fact, Mitzi used to stand, Mitzi used to pull the ears of the Alsatians. So sit on the top, the back of the Alsatian, and these are guard dogs, remember, and they just loved the little monkey, yeah. Mitzi. And uh, they, Mitzi would pull the ears of the guard dogs and they would just look up as if say, that's fine. Well, I think we should do a whole episode on Mitzi. <laughs> we'll upload some pictures of Mitzi onto uh, your Instagram, which is at eventfulentrepreneur. Okay, moving on from uh, monkey business. Last time we reached the point in your life uh, where you had conceived and delivered Bournemouth Sevens, as I said, it was you spoke about it being a massive step up and a kind of it was new to you. Uh, you basically said you didn't have a clue what you're doing when you joined when you started doing it. Um, 
what are your biggest learnings from after that event being being delivered? So you, you, you spoke about seeing people turn up and the excitement, that thrill you get of people queuing to your event and then it's delivered on that next day. What were your thoughts like? That that went amazing. That didn't go so well. What what were your main takeaways? Yeah, there was lots. There was lots and lots of takeaways from that first festival. The first thing first, what I do remember the day after the festival was it literally felt like a huge relief. Like we didn't know the figures. We didn't know how much was taken on the bar. Oh, so you you didn't have an immediate idea of whether it was a success like financially? At no, all. no, okay. no, no, no. That took like. That look, took like two weeks afterwards once all the bookkeepers, um, all the bookkeepers, the bookkeeper, which was my wife <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and my old man. Um, yeah, added up the money and just to see, you know, you've got to pay everyone. Once you, you know, you, you've got the festival, you've got to pay everyone off who's worked on the weekend, whether it's all the bar staff or whether it's um, just everyone who's working on the weekend. And then what are you left with? And that's when you find out, actually, was it a success financially? Was it a success over the weekend? It was a huge success over the weekend. Because I knew people were left there wanting more. And that was the bit that made me go, we've got to take this to the next level. But so many learnings, so many lessons, ridiculous amount of lessons learned in that first year. And um, it was a serious journey, um, those months. You've got to remember, the idea came about in October 20, 2007. And we put the event on in May 2008. There wasn't a lot of time when there's just you and your wife cracking on with it. And... Uh, that pressure built and built and built the closer you got to the festival. Um, and as we spoke about, and when you, you know, you open your curtains in the morning and you see that it was a sunny day, that was a huge advantage. And, you know, like I said in the last podcast, um, if it would have rained that day because people didn't buy tickets online, if it had rained that day, I'm not too sure we'd be sitting here having this conversation. I really, I really, I'm really not sure. It played a huge factor as well as every, everything else that goes on when putting on a, a large scale event. Do you believe in luck? Hundred percent. We're all born lucky. It's whether you want to bring that luck into your life or not. It's whether you open your mind or not that you are lucky, and luck's a good thing. And there's a lot of people who can close off their minds and feel like they're never lucky, and and the world's against them. I'm totally the opposite. Making your luck. Oh, mate, I love to create luck. Mm. You know, and um, it's how optimistic you are as well. There's nothing, nothing better than being around optimistic people, for me personally. Um, and I try to surround myself with as many as possible. So I get the feeling that after that event, you you knew you had something, you knew it had legs. Uh, but what happened at, what kind of things happened at that event that you took away thinking, I need to stop that happening next year? Was there anything particular or was it just in small improvements? Oh, lots, 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 <laughs> lots and lots. I don't know where you want to start. Um, first things first, you know, to get sponsorship and this played a big part and played a big part over the years, over the last 13 years, sponsorship. And it plays a big part in all big sporting events and, and events you in, know, general. Um, in general. So year one, um, obviously, as you know, Sophie come on board. Um, and Sophie Christie, yeah. Yeah, Sophie Christie come on board. And before you, um, and she went on holiday. Before she come on board, she had a holiday booked um, about uh, three weeks before she started. And on the beach, she met someone there who worked for a company called Game and that person and Sophie told him about the um coming on board working for this new event called Bournemouth Sevens Festival. They swapped numbers. Um when they got back to England, Game Game introduced us to Nintendo, who are a client of theirs. We had a meeting with Nintendo. They love rugby, they love the concept. They totally bought into the passion and the um the vision that I had and it was 
a breath of fresh air because literally about a month before the festival, they come on board and backed us, mm. you know, and that played a huge part in that year's one's festival. And they just did, wanted to do a one-year contract just to test the water. Um, so it just goes to show that, you know, like I was saying before, people reading reading books and how to do sponsorship, how to get sponsorship, there isn't a set way. Sponsorship is about relationships. It's about building relationships, about opening doors. It's about looking at opportunities when opportunities you feel aren't going to arise. It's about creating opportunities, about making yourself feel lucky that you're in a position to be chatting to someone. And if you're inquisitive like we are, you ask the right questions because that's the key. And um, you don't know what's going to come out the other side. And to get that on board, year one really helped. Um, and we also got on board um, another company who fully backed us uh, called Worthington's. Mm. There's a lady called Angie Taylor. I'll never forget her. She totally fought our corner with her head, head office. She was totally behind the concept. She totally bought into the passion and where we were going with this and the vision. And she's the one who got it through. And I never forget her till today. And um, I always thank her when I see her. I never forget that. And it's what's important in business. And the journey I've been on over the last 13 years is to say thank you to the people who've been on that journey with you. Because there's a lot, a lot of people. And um, the journey we're going on now is a great uh, time for us to vocalise this. I vocalise it personally to them, but I think this is a nice platform to be able to do that. You spoke about the fact that there was this serendipitous moment where where Sophie, who you just employed, bumps into somebody on a beach and starts talking and, and gets a relationship going, and, and that creates a sponsorship opportunity. Now, that thread is kind of, I see it, going through Bournemouth Sevens ever since. Like A lot of the sponsorship deals have come from relationships and, and chance encounters and luck rearing its head again. Um, is that something you kind of cultivate? You look for those opportunities, or do you just wait for them to come to you? How does it work? I don't go out looking for them. You know, I see lots of people doing all these networking events. That's just not my bag. It's not my style to go to networking events and hand over a business card. I don't even have a business card. It's, it's being in the right place at the right time. And if you're in the right place at the right time, things happen. If you're inquisitive and ask the right questions to the right people, more questions arise. And you start getting your answers. You start building a picture in your head. And that person knows someone who knows someone. Everyone is a contact, Dan, like I keep on saying. And it's been drilled into me since a young young age and um looking over the years the amount of sponsorship deals that have been done by purely chatting to people and doors opening and follow through but you follow through with something we've got a great product we've got a great brand and people want to be associated with this brand it's worked tremendously well over the years and it will carry on working well with many more years to come because um i love people conversations and just chatting and seeing where that takes us it's crazy to think of it now, but Bournemouth Sevens back then was a new concept. It was, uh, you were relatively unknown in the world of festivals. Obviously, you'd been running events for years. You were a new name in the field. And somehow these two major names come on board. That must have been quite a relief to think, oh, I've got some backing here. This adds a bit of oomph to our brand. Uh, it must have been a great feeling. That was a wonderful feeling. Wonderful feeling. Brand association. You know, I don't think enough businesses work on this and collaborating and partnering with people. Brand association is so powerful. And the more people out there who can work and collaborate with other companies, the better, the quicker you're going to grow. So when it comes to the event itself, we, we kind of spoke about the feeling after it, it actually happened and, and the relief. During the event itself, what were the kind of day-to-day, -day, it was a two-day event, right, to start with? Yeah, because we didn't... <laughs> 
In 2008, in fact, I wanted the bank holiday weekend. I always wanted that last May bank holiday weekend. And when we approached the venue, which is Bournemouth Sports Club next to the airport um, in 2007 and wanted to hire the land, 67 acres of land, two Astro pitches, a clubhouse, 10 rugby pitches, 10, you know, it was a big old, big old space. It's perfect for, for, for a festival of our, of our kind. And, um, I remember going to speak to them and they wanted a higher fee and I was happy with the higher fee, but they then wanted a higher fee plus a pound per person coming into the event. And it was just murky, murky waters. And it just needed to be a very, very clean deal. So we agreed on a deal that was just a, a higher fee, which worked. And it was a win-win situation. It worked for them. They were in serious trouble at the time, financial trouble. We come in and paid a, a wonderful rent to them, which really helped with paying their loan, their monthly loan. So again, we created a wonderful win-win situation for both parties. Funny that they were trying to use a, a similar method as you that we mentioned in the previous episode yeah. of a pound per man. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but uh, you like to keep things simple and you mentioned that in the previous episode yeah. and that wasn't clear cut enough for you. No, it, 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 stuff like that, Dan, can create grey areas. You know, the amount of people coming on site, a security coming on site, there's 50, 60, 70, 80 of them. Are all the caterers coming on site? You know, there's 12 caterer units and three, four caterers to each unit. You know, it just gets complicated. How many of our staff you know, they'd be, they, they might have been there with a the clicker game or who are they, your staff? They know it's, the, it's just headache I didn't need, mate. And um, yeah, that was never a route I was going to ever go down. But then again, we did another deal, another little win-win as well. In that year one, we actually used their license. Mm. So the deal was we used their, normally you'd have to go and get your own license, whether it's for 4999 or 9999 The numbers go up to like 10000 20000 30000 But in year one, we used their license. We asked them, can we use your license? to save all the headache of going and getting a license. And they agreed. Um, and we did a deal that they could keep their bar open in the clubhouse. Again, a win-win. So they took the headache away from us. They were taken on the bar in the clubhouse. And um, it worked for year one. And there was lots of lessons uh, learned in year one. You spoke about headache and trying to avoid headache. Now, at the moment, the way Bournemouth Sevens work is there is a core team that are kind of putting out fires throughout the weekend. Uh, not literally uh, most of the time, yeah. <laughs> I have to say, uh, but we're constantly problem solving and, and, and getting things done. Now, at that point, you were uh, a smaller team, a much smaller team. What kind of dramas did you come up with over the weekend? Well, I wouldn't say there was dramas, but there's lots of things. You know, the things that you're bringing in, all of a sudden you're building the site. It takes 10 days to build the site in year one. That's a long time to build a festival site um, for the unknown. Didn't know how many people were going to come through the doors because people just turned up on the day because they wouldn't buy tickets pre and put their card across the in, into a computer back then. Um, so it was all the unknown. So, so like I said before in the previous uh, episode, you're booking security, you're booking toilets and showers and 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 flooring and tents and everything goes with it. But then when you're booking security, how much security do you want? How many do you need? They'd say to me, "How many do you need?" I said, "Well, I think we need 50. <laughs> Plucking numbers Just out there. plucking numbers in there. It could have been 30, it could have been 100, it could have been 90. We didn't know. Um, but looking back onto 2008, it's only after the festival you realise that because it was a new business model that no one had ever done in the world, it, what it did, it was it created two sets of people. It was the sports people would turn up in the, at not, uh, uh, on Friday or go camping. They've, and then all the sports people turn up at 9 o'clock on Saturday to play all their sport. I didn't know a massive influx of people would turn up at three, two, three, four, five, six in the afternoon. And then when you've got all these people turning up in the afternoon, you're like, 
oh my God, where have these come from? And everyone back then, I think it was 20 quid a ticket. I think it was back then. And um, again, you're learning on the spot because you had all the security there. They were going to, the security was signing out at six o'clock because they were going to go and work on all the local nightclubs in town and everywhere else. And all of a sudden it's like, no, you can't. They're like, well, we, we can. You've only paying us till six. It's like, I'll just carry on paying you. I'll carry on paying. There's a massive influx. We need security here because there's so many more people coming in. You nearly ended up with an event with no security. Yeah, it was, it was madness. It was madness. But again, there was lots of things happening on that weekend which was all brand spanking new to me. It was, and you had to react and you had to react quickly. You had to react with a positive attitude and you had to make big decisions very quickly. Um, but again, you know, um, you then worked out, God, this festival is actually a nighttime, a daytime and a nighttime. It wasn't just a, a, a mellow mix of people just throughout the day and a mellow mix of people. It was actually a, a daytime and a nighttime festival. Then they meet. Again, I, I was learning as we go along. So, you know, that was as a knock-on effect for the amount of toilets you bring in. How many toilets do I bring into this festival? Well, how many people you bring in? Well, we don't know yet. <laughs> you know? So, um, again, with the toilets, um, how many do you bring in? 30, 50, 60. What happens later on when the toilets people drop them off and they've left and they're going to come and pick them up on the Monday. They've got to, obviously, there's someone there to clean them out overnight. Where's the toilet roll? Run out of toilet roll. Whose idea was it to bring the toilet roll? I thought it was a toilet company's idea. You meant to bring the toilet roll, aren't you? You know, little things can can escalate and you've got to act quickly. Straight to the cash and carry. Yeah. Loads of toilet roll. <laughs> we had a whole van of bog roll turning up at the festival. <laughs> So all those sort of things just mounting up year by year of these things, right? I'm not, not, never making that mistake again. I'm yeah. never forgetting that. And you will never forget yeah. a mistake once yeah. it's happened at, yeah. at a big event. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, these are all lovely, wonderful learning curves. And all the learning curves I learned in that first year was tweaked and improved for year two for 2009. And that went to a whole new level. That's the, that's 2009 is a whole new story. Mm. But just going back, in fact, in as it was the festival was great creating more traction around the UK and I could feel this big snowball effect happening. It was rolling down a hill and it's getting bigger and bigger as we're getting closer to the actual start date. I um I went and got a went to the university and there was a chap there called Alan Dove who it was Bournemouth University. Bournemouth University, yeah. yeah. And I needed someone who could be a site manager, someone who could look after the site um in terms of the bars. Uh, the showers, all the contractors come in on site, everything that was happening. And all the fun stuff. All the, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> all the fun stuff. Someone's get uh, knee deep in, uh, you know what. So, um, yeah, I want to get Alan Dove on board. And he's a broad northerner as Alan. I said, Alan, I need someone to come on board. And I think you're the right man. And he said, let's look at, let's have a look what you're looking at doing. He was, he's been in live events before, uh, putting on the student ball and stuff and uh, in a field. And he was like, Oh, no, Dodge, not for me. No, don't think this one will work, son. And I was like, mate, can you take that back, mate? Get on board and let's prove it. Let's make sure this works. Okay, I'll give you, give you a bit of a chance then. And i never forget his Northern accent. And he's with us still today. He is, yeah. And he's been an absolute legend over the years and uh, he's grown with us. And they were, they were good days with Alan back then. They were, and uh, I never forget those words ringing around in my ear. Oh, no. And it was proper. <laughs> oh, no. no. <laughs> oh, no, no, like no. Like Church no. of the Dog. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, no, no. But, um, yeah, he's been, he's, been, he's been a great help. And, uh, again, that was another contact through a contact. And um, he helped run all the bars, and we brought all the students. And from day one, I always wanted to make sure that we kept everything local. 
you know, it's kept all the suppliers local and uh, all the people that worked at the festival, all the companies, whether it was the fencing companies, whether it was all the students behind the bar, you know, shipping, the, you know, 50, 60, 70 students in to work behind the bar back then. Um, the security company local, they were fantastic. Mark and Mark, and Mark at first stop. We still kind of uh, default to, to local where we can in the festival today. That's something, again, that's followed on through and kind of is, is part of Bournemouth Sevens. Yeah. Well, we're really proud. We're really proud to be from Bournemouth. We all live down here. We all live and breathe. We love Bournemouth. There's not a better place to live in the UK, in, in, in my opinion, with lovely beaches and the New Forest and everything goes with it, and Bournemouth Football Club and obviously the festival and the air show. And, you know, we're very pro and keeping it local is really important to us to, to, to get everyone behind it and have a wonderful, positive vibe about the festival. Don't big it up too much. Everyone will move down here. No, no. Yeah, in fact, in fact, don't. In fact, Bournemouth, Bournemouth craps. <laughs> you mentioned that uh, Alan had some reservations early doors about it. Did you have, I wouldn't call him a doubter, but did you have any other doubters around the time that said this isn't going to work yes. and and don't waste your time? You're going to, you know, you're going to lose a lot of money. Yeah, 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 yeah. Loads. I had lots of no's in that first year. Did you deal with them the same you did when uh, you went to clubs asking to use a venue for a sixth form ball? Yeah, yeah. I love it. I, I love it. No, it's a challenge. I was selling my dream. My dream was to put on a festival, a sport and music festival. That was my dream. And I was selling my dream to magazines, to newspapers, to the BBC, to Sky TV. And my dream was that the way I, weirdly, my mind works is I visualise exactly what I want it to look like. And then I print all, I print everything on the flyers. So once you're committed to saying Sky TV are going to be there and BBC are going to be there and this newspaper and magazines and these celebrities and that, 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 that it went on, the list went on, I had to make sure that happened. So I committed to it and then I tried to make sure it happened. But when you're phoning up a magazine or the BBC saying, can you come down and report on this or Sky TV saying this would be a great one for you and you're trying to convince them, there's lots of no's. And you dealt with them in your usual way of, I'll just, I'm going to continue. And if you want to come along for the rides, you're welcome to. Relentless. That's all I can say. I was on those phones, relentless. If they said no, I'd phone back the next day. They said no, I'd phone back the next day. In the end, like the Ministry of Sound story, when we hired the Ministry Club in 2000, exactly the same story. Just relentless and on, the, on, on people's cases in a nice way. You know, but, and, and there was lots of people who also supported me and lots of people who also, also got behind the festival and the idea. Um, mainly my wife, Flo, was the, the main one, and obviously Sophie buying into the concept and then Alan buying into it, and then all of a sudden lots of other people buying into it. And it, what it does, it creates this wonderful positivity as you're going along the journey because all the local companies and people who are backing you, are the rumours out there, this new rugby, sport and music festival bubbling under the scenes, behind the scenes, you know? What was the key thing you'd take away from that festival? Was, the, was it the atmosphere? Was it the people? What was it? The people, the atmosphere, the vibe, the like-minded people in a field partying, the fancy dress, people drinking beers, people dancing, people listening to all the music you want to listen to. I still remember to this day, and it's, it's, it sits fondly with me. Yeah, that vibe. It's the vibe. You can't beat the Bournemouth Sevens vibe. Any festival, I've been to most festivals around the UK, and there's some brilliant ones out there, Dan. Brilliant, but this is a different vibe, you know. And lots of people have lots of people have met at the festival. Lots of people have had kids. Lots of people have been married and and engaged due to meeting people at this festival because everyone's like minded. 
for the first time I socially interacted with my fiance was at Bournemouth Sevens. Was it? Yeah, I, I worked with her, but um, bumped into her at, at Bournemouth Sevens. Uh, now we have uh, a kid and another one on the way. Well, we're getting go. married. I yeah. never knew that. Never knew that. I get lots and lots of messages of people now who are probably like 30, 35, 40, and look back at the memories and say, thank you, I met my wife there. I was from London, she was from Manchester, but we were all in the same in the same festival together and that's where it's gone. And I'm sure that a lot of kids were created there as well over the years. Well, we went as far as uh, having a baby born on the day at Bournemouth Sevens Open. That's right. So, yeah. So, as much as a pain in the ass it was at the time, because yeah. I was supposed to be working it. Yeah. Um, yeah, my baby was born on the Friday of Bournemouth Sevens. That's right. And I think he's the youngest ever person to come to Bournemouth Sevens. Yeah, less than 24 hours old. Yes, Ethan. <laughs> awesome. Meeting celebs yeah. and, and the VVIP. Loved that's it. right. Yeah. So what did you get wrong? Let's talk specifics in this one. What went wrong and what did you learn from that? There's nothing that stands out that went wrong. But I learned a shed load. And I learned a shed load about the movement of people on site. When you're opening the doors, you don't know which route they're going to go. You don't know which bar they're going to go into. You don't know how much they're going to spend per head. You don't know what music tent they liked and which ones they didn't like. You know, I just laid it on a laid everything on a plate that year. It's nothing that is today. You know, you're talking about a big beer marquee. You know, there's big ropes hanging off the sides. You know, and um, but what we did right was we made the service quick that people can get a pint quickly. And the prices are very, very competitive. Um, and we made people leave there with a real good taste in their mouth. Looking back, it's wild to put on a festival and big the festival up so much, putting all that pressure on yourself with three people, myself, Fleur and Sophie, full-timers. And then we had 200 staff on the day. That's crazy, isn't it? That's You're crazy. Suddenly responsible for two hundred people. Mate, it's wild. I look back and think, you, you mad? But I didn't know. Like I said before, I just did not know. And naivety in business can be really powerful sometimes, and that that certainly worked. And but there's lots of deals that I would have changed. Like for example, you know, the deal with the sports club, um, the fo you know, with, with, with them using their license. The following year, um, we gave them more money for rent, and we used the clubhouse. Uh, we closed the bar down the clubhouse and we used that for all our security and police and everything else that we, which we use today. Um, another deal with the catering company in year one, he didn't know how many numbers we were going to get through the door, so he didn't know how many catering units to bring. So we we, we uh, did a deal where we just did a percentage of the turnover that he took instead of doing like we do for all the previous years where we go, well, you pay us X, you bring your unit in there, good luck, sell as many uh, many units of your hamburgers or pizzas or Thai or whatever it may be, and away you go. Good luck to you. Um, again, that was a learning curve, but it worked in year one. That wasn't clean enough for you again. It wasn't it? clean no. enough for me because you just never know. You know, uh, John, who come on board at that time, did all the units, really lovely guy, but you just don't know what figures you're being told. And I don't like the, I don't like the grey area in business. I like to keep it really simple. I know where I stand and you know where you stand. You know, I'll bring all the people in. You earn as much money as you can. Good luck to you. If you need anything, give me a shout. I'm here for you. We're here to make this work for you. Again, there was learning curves of security. You knew what sort of numbers there were uh, for 2009. To know how many security, you knew that security, you didn't want security clicking off at 6 p.m. You wanted them to stay in there till 1 a.m., you know, making sure everyone's safe. You told me a funny story uh, once about the airport which is just across from Bournemouth Sevens coming and have a conversation with you uh, was that, that was year one right 
Oh, yes, I do remember. I do remember. Air traffic control uh, and the police. That's a unique problem for Bournemouth Sevens, I think, being right next to an airport. Right next to an airport, yeah. I remember, uh, you've got to remember all the staff are on walkie-talkie, security, you've got earpieces in. Um, you're running around the site, you know, I'm running around the site trying to make it tidy everything up, keep making sure that all the, the DJs are in the right place at the right time, security standing in the right place, people coming on, where are people moving? And then, and there was a big fun fair there. And uh, and I have my, well, I never like to wear an earpiece because it just goes off. I just like to have a walkie talkie when I need it. If someone that's really urgent, I've got my mobile on, on vibrate, and it's always call me or text me. And I know if it's, it's serious when that happens. And my, my, my phone was rattling in my pocket, I remember. And it was like, oh God, here we go. So I let it rattle, let it rattle because I was, I was dealing with something. And then uh, a load of texts coming through. It was my dad and it was, it was Flo and it was Sophie and everyone around me texted, urgent, urgent, dodge, we need you. Dodge, dodge, dodge. It was all loads of messages like, oh shit, this is something going on. I dread to think what it is. So I went over and um, yeah, the air traffic control and police uh, turned up and said, right, that ride you got over there, which is like 50 meters up in the air, it was called a reverse bungee when you get in a cage and it makes them, you know, the one you get in a cage, it's got those two big sort of 50 meter poles either side and it pings you up into the sky. And uh, they said, that needs to come down now. And I was like, well, it's just taken him two hours to put up. It can't come down. You know, he's traveled down from Manchester. And they went, take this down now as we're closing your festival. I was like, Ooh. right, <laughs> right, uh, right, okay, how am I going to deal with this? So I went over to the... Uh, the lovely funfair people and um, had a, a conversation with the chap and I said, I'm not being funny, mate, you've got to take this down. And he was like, I'm not taking this down. I was like, well, you've got to take this down. And I was like, otherwise the festival closes. And we were there for about 10 minutes. And in the end, he was like, okay, I'm going to take it down. But I want £3,000. I was like, mate, I haven't got a quid, let alone 3,000 quid to give you. I said, where's the 3,000 quid come from? I'll give you £300 for your petrol money. You know, this is something that's totally out of our hands. And he was like, he would not let, let it go. And um, I remember I carried on back and I said, mate, there's no way you're getting that money. It's impossible. So anyway, I saw him taking it down. I was thinking, go on, take it down. And he had, uh, and I remember, <laughs> I remember halfway through, he took it down, had low loaded it all on his truck. And I was thinking, please leave the site. Come on, please. And he was, um, he didn't leave the site. He was literally chasing me around the site. And this is a, this is a gentleman with uh, tattoos all over him and a couple of teeth in his in his, in, in his mouth after three grand from me and there's me hiding in different tents peeking out the side to see where he is and where he's not and that, it was like another clip out of Benny Hill again about two hours later and uh, I saw the, I saw his truck leave the festival and that was a, that was a nice feeling have you stayed in contact? <laughs> no, 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 definitely, mate. <laughs> definitely not. Definitely not. But there's another learning there. You know? Another learning. Yeah. So obviously you have to take those things into consideration. And to this day, we've got a, a strong relationship with, with the airport yeah. and, and, and all services really, haven't yeah. we? Yeah. Yeah. But you know, again, you just, you just didn't think you just, there was about, there was about 10 different rides there, you know, and the deal was then I said, you bring all the rides and you take all the money. I won't pay I won't charge you a fee to be here because the numbers are unknown again. You take all the money, good luck to you, and, you know, and they did well. They did well out of it. Um, again, a win-win. How did the sport go down over the weekend? Did you manage to get to see much of the sport or I were you mostly busy? I didn't, get, I, was, yeah, I didn't get to see much sport, you know, and you're, you're, you're making sure everything's working well, from music to security to people being safe, to people coming in safe, people having fun. Um, I saw the final on the Sunday. And the standard of rugby on that main pitch, even back then, was really, really good. 
And you know, we did it, we did it properly. So we everyone got medals. Everyone went on stage. The winners got big, massive trophies. And you know, looking back in, in 2009, we set the standards high. You know, we wanted people to leave there and go, that was a really well-run tournament. You know, you've got to remember that is the I wanted it to be a festival, but actually it was a tournament in the day. Again, when all these numbers were coming in through the post in our house, obviously we were, we were working at the garage at home. Cold garage, I hear. Oh, mate, it was brutal. Poor, poor Soph. And uh, again, again, you look back at it and go, I didn't know how to run a tournament. A tournament is actually, these are all the matches being played at this time. It starts at 10, finishes at 6. They go into the quarterfinals, the finals. They go into the next day. And when I realised we had 96 teams, I was like, my God, I need someone to run this tournament. So I remember, again, using Google, getting back on Google, doing my homework research. Who can run a, a big tournament? Right, the National School Sevens, 600 teams, been going for 70 years. Who's the top man? Peter Tanner. Peter, can you come down and run this tournament? He's like, oh, I'm not too sure, mate. Was, you know, I'm not too sure about this one. And then the next morning he says, I'm in. That's my fee. If you can pay that, I'm in. And he run a really smooth tournament. It run like clockwork. And he's been with us the whole of 13 years. He's been absolutely loyal. And, and someone I thank hugely for taking that stress and strain off my shoulders or trying to get someone locally down here to run that. You know, he run it professionally. His dad run National School Sevens for God knows how many years. He run it with his wife for God knows 40 odd years and he come in and just worked his magic. It's still one of the, the big selling points for Warmer Sevens today is how well the tournaments are run. For something that is a hybrid of a sporting event and a festival, uh, the sporting event is is not neglected. It's very much the core piece, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. There's 400 teams today. Yeah flying in from different countries and all around the UK driving down. It's um, 1,500 matches being played in two days. Word spread quite quickly as well, didn't it? Yeah, it spread really quickly. But the good thing about Sevens is that it's normally, a, it's normally a bunch of mates who all went to school together, all went to uni together, all played in different parts of the country. They all come back together as a kind of a reunion or an end-of-season tour. When they leave Bournemouth Sevens, they all disperse back to different parts of the country, spreading the love, spreading the word. Mm. And... Um, that worked really well for us and nothing beats word of mouth. Nothing can beat that. And that, that adds to the atmosphere as well because these are the people that are not seeing each other one week to the next and then suddenly they're reuniting in this one place and that's, you know what people are like, what lads are like when they get yeah. together on a stag do or, or girls on a, yeah. on a hen do. It's just excitement and yeah. this is what everyone feels like at yeah. one of the sevens. They're, they're all like excited kids, all like-minded, they love their sport and they love to party. So yeah. it, it, that's what adds to the atmosphere, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, you know what it's like on a stag, do Yeah, lads, first night, we'll take it easy. We'll take it easy. <laughs> Boom. Five o'clock finish. Yeah. Five a.m. or six a.m. or whatever it may be. And uh, yeah, it's the same. That's the same. And, you know, it's it's everyone gets very excited and it's a lovely feeling and seeing everyone just being in a jovial atmosphere and just having fun. And that's what business is about. That's what life's about. And that one weekend, people can just forget everything going on in their world. And that's what, you know, it's like a mini holiday coming down to, to the festival. And something else that's uh, become synonymous with uh, Bournemouth Sevens is the kind of offering when it comes to treating players like like they are the, the core of the festival. So VIP, for example, and, and today we have VVIP as well. Yeah. How did VIP look that year? <laughs> VIP, wow. VIP in 2008. It was like, talk about putting pressure on yourself again. I put an event on within an event. That makes sense. You know, this was a, a 60 meter marquee. This was tables of 10. There was 20 tables in there. This was silver service. This was like three, four, five. I can't remember how many course meals it was. This was having a, the choir sing the national anthems before lunch. 
You know, this was when Austin Healy was hosting the event. You know, charity auction, Lewis Moody there, Ollie Barkley played a huge part, you know. And this is like your full Monty gig. Yeah, kind of, but in a posh Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Getting the rugby names in. That's right. And and I must say, Austin Healy did a, a great job, right? Yeah, he was brilliant. Austin was absolutely brilliant. He, you know, he, had all, he was on the dancing shows and he was a big face on telly and he was on every reality show going. He was there for the pound note. <laughs> Good old odds. He's got the gift of the gab, so it works. He's got the it? gift of gab, and yeah. he's 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 got a good heart on him, you know. And um, he was brilliant for us. He was brilliant for us, and uh, he hosted it very well. He made everyone laugh. He took the Mickey out of everyone, you know. Even went on, even went on the main stage after that in the main beer tent afterwards, singing "Sex Is on Fire" and um, songs on stage. He just he just basically was there for the whole day, um, being the front man, and it worked a treat for us. And it was a great win win situation again. He got paid well, and we got great stuff from him. And both those aspects, both the kind of celebrity aspects and the VIP offering has has continued throughout Bournemouth Sevens, but they've moved on quite a bit, haven't they? Yeah, it's changed a lot. you got to remember, those tables were £1,500 a table. <laughs> you know, that's a well, lot of money back yeah. then. That's a, a lot of money now. Um, and we had 20 tables sold. It was a, it was, it was brilliant. It really was great. And they're looking over the main pitch. But we've changed that, you know, because I knew that format didn't work. You know, there's a lot of headache goes with that format. And anyone who knows in that corporate world, you know, there is a time and a place for these corporate events and they are fantastic. But for me to have another business within a business when I was trying to run a festival, yeah. you know, 2009 is like, right, we need to change this. Let's make this a proper party. Let's mm. make this, take all the tables out. Let's make this one big VIP tent where we had the star cloth. And anyone who's been to the festival back in those days, back in the, uh, the 2000 and nine years at one it was a big star cloth and we created a big it was like a big nightclub you know exactly what it is it yeah. was it was a big warm nightclub looking over the main pitch with a with a uh, a big garden area looking out so everyone can have beers and in the night time they were in there partying and um but i needed to learn that lesson from 2008 for me to be able to tweak it for the future years again i was going in thinking well okay you know 1500 pound a table 20 tables that gets the well, the sums were 30, 40 grand, but you've got to minus the silver service. Now, that might have been God knows how much it was back then. And then you've got to minus all the putting up the tents and the flooring and the carpets and the lighting and the sound just within that itself. So, yeah, another another lesson learned. You've also got to know your audience a bit better. And you think of the Bournemouth Sevens audience, that kind of corporate dining experience isn't necessarily what they'll be looking for, is it? They're, they're there to have a raucous time some mm. of them so i think the vip offering today and how it has evolved uh fits the bill a, a bit more but yeah interesting experiment in what works at these kind of events i mm. think mm. and another another uh, another biggie was i always wanted the bank holiday weekend like i said before mm. and in year one we couldn't get it the sports club had a it was rented out that weekend so we had to have the weekend before um so i couldn't wait and what the, one of the lessons i learned actually was on the Saturday, the bar and the, the bar take and the bars were packed on the Saturday. On the Sunday, I was like, God, if we replicate this, this is brilliant. And on the Sunday, about five o'clock, six o'clock, if I started leaving the festival, I was like, what's going on? What's happened? People walking out from the campsite with all their uh, bags on the back and people were leaving because they had, they'd, um, they'd work the next day. And I always knew this could be a problem, but actually to see people leaving at five, six o'clock, you're like, no. <laughs> Where's everyone going? But that, play, that had a huge knock-on effect to the bars because when you added up all the bar take, the bar take was 50% down on the Sunday, you know, and that was when, 
you know, we wanted that bank holiday weekend, we couldn't get it, but then we made sure that bank holiday was locked in for, you know, 20 years. So only the, the hardcore were staying. To the hardcore were staying. And there was a lot of hardcore people <laughs> yeah. partying. Don't get me wrong. It, you know, yeah. it really went off that night. But it, you did see people leave and that's very disheartening. Mm. It is very disheartening. Why? Where are they going? I know they've got work tomorrow, but surely they can stay and have a few more beers. But then you, don't, then you realise that people are travelling from different parts of the country. So it might be a two, three hour drive home for them. Again, like getting a bank holiday is another win-win, isn't it? For, for you as a business uh, and for the whole team as a business, obviously it's more profitable but also from a customer standpoint they're getting more for their money because yeah. they're getting that extra day where they can party and have fun on the yeah. sunday and not worry about what's happening yeah. on the monday because the majority of people have the have the bank holiday monday yeah. off it's huge it's huge having a bank holiday weekend is huge because there's no excuses if you're leaving the missus at home or you're leaving your half at home or whatever there's no excuses that you've got work or you know you're there you're buying into the weekend and that's what people do they buy into the weekend because of the because it's a great crack so we know the sport ended up being very well organised and, and you got the right people in place. What about the other aspects of the festival, the, the, the key music side of things? Mm. How did you go about getting the right people in? Yeah, again, that was, a, that was a, something that I used in the, from all my contacts. Um, and it was important that all DJs were coming in and playing the right music. And you know, we had a big festival stage there and we had bands on stage. And, but I wanted to make sure that it was, it was they were playing music that everyone... No, you know, Sex is on Fire and all the big hits and at the time and all, this, all the songs everyone can sing back to. And it was important that we had all the DJs in, in, in the tents. But again, you know, a DJ set would be two, three hours. Again, I was flipping around. You'd have to put three or four DJs in one tent and making sure they're all working together. They've on site, come on site and they've got their wristbands. And it took a lot, a lot of work, a lot of graft that did to making sure all the music was well-timed around the site. So, um, you know, and we like to keep DJs local as well. It's really important. Again, they, 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 they feel part of the festival, as we do with lots of other local firms and people and local staff, etc. So you found yourself going around each kind of arena as they are now, kind of making sure the DJs are playing what the crowd want. Yeah, 100%. It's funny because we, we spoke to Haskell uh, recently and he said, you're still doing that now, yeah. even, even with the bigger names. <laughs> it's true. I was on his shoulder going, mate, you better be playing some good tunes today, mate. Don't ruin this crowd. <laughs> <laughs> Relax, Dodge. I know what I'm doing. <laughs> it was funny. He said he was nervous, wasn't he? Thinking that I, I, I thought he could be like the Paris Hilton of DJing or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Turning up just because he's a face. But he did a, he, uh, Haskell did a great job last year. And most DJs do when you walk around Bournemouth Sevens and there are, especially nowadays, there are different arenas playing different types of yeah. music, but they all seem to know their crowd. Uh, we always get the right people in the right place. Yeah. Um, we've got 12 genres of music. We've got 12 now. We've got 12 festival arenas, mm. you know, from from every genre of music. So it's uh, catering for everyone, which is great. How many arenas did you have in that first year? Oh, three. <laughs> yeah. Is that including VIP? Include VIP. Um, we had the massive beer tent and I've got I had a champagne tent we had a champagne tent it didn't look like a champagne tent as you imagine today it was a tent <laughs> it was a tent with selling champagne in there but we had these uh, bar stools that you would sit on and uh, uh, yeah but it was a tent with the big ropes coming out the side back then you know <laughs> good memories man we look back and fond memories of, of, of looking back and seeing what it was back then was there a stage that year yeah, there's a yeah. festival stage. That was really important to us yeah. because what we did, that festival stage converted, like I was saying, daytime, nighttime before, you know, with different people coming in. All the winners and all the runners up would go on stage and win their trophies and get medals handed out by myself or Lewis Moody or whoever it was at the time. And that was a huge highlight. 
you know, when people are buying into this tournament, into the sport, they were going on the main stage, mm. you know, so they felt special. And, uh, yeah. Talking of uh, festival uh, site itself, uh, obviously Bournemouth Sports Club, um, it's a public space every other week of the year. How difficult was it to kind of contain that as a festival area? Nobody getting in and out <laughs> without a ticket. How did how yeah. did that end up happening? Well, that was really important that you didn't want people turning up and and just you know thinking it's a free for all. So there's a local company who we use fencing for now. Um, and really good guy and we've used him for all these years but I remember back then he said how much fencing do you want I said well I've got 67 acres of land here we don't want anyone coming in on a freebie so let's fence the lot I remember his eyes just going ka-ching <laughs> um, 67 acres of land to fence you remember this was Harris fence it was only 6 foot tall if someone wants to jump over a Harris fence you can jump over a Harris fence you know um, again another learning lesson from back then that you didn't need to fence all of the areas of 67 acres of land you know you could bring that in and fence the the core areas maybe and it may be sort of 30 or 40 acres of land and um again another learning lesson but he had the one arm bandit spitting out he coins. did he did <laughs> <Ka-ching>! <laughs> ding, 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 ding. but again you know i it, it set the scene it was important that people knew it was being fenced the whole way around mm-hmm. you know it was a proper event um and it was making sure that people come to that event they felt very safe and they thought this is a real event this is really well organized and that's what people left with and that's what and I'll tell you another big thing that I learned as well, and it was something that is really important, was I remember back then there was a company that was on Sky Sports, there was a company who had filmed for Sky Sports, and I got in contact with them. I said, Look, I'd love to film Bournemouth 7s. I went, okay. They went, it's four and a half grand. I was like, geez, you know, I could have gotten a local friend locally for three, four hundred quid, but they made this amazing video. And at the time, it was heartbreaking to pay that money. But that's what spread around the country, the video. And that what that's what put us on the map, as well as everything else. Mm. So that's a you know when I look back, that was a that was a really good move. We still invest a lot into a, the, yeah. the kind of promo video as well, yeah. don't we? Yeah. It, it's the only real way. Like photographs can do it justice, but not as much as a video. Kind yeah. of gives you the feel of the 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 dual personalities of Bournemouth Sevens, getting in the really exciting sport in there uh, that you can take part in or just watch, yeah. and the party atmosphere after. Yeah. Getting that across in a video is a lot easier than images and websites. And Absolutely, things. and it spreads like wildfire. You put same on on WhatsApp these days, ping, you can spread around the whole country if mm. people are liking the video and just forward it on. Yeah, you know, forward it on to fifty mates by press of a button. So um, yeah, it played a huge part. It's played a huge part in our business model over the years. We play it's, it's something we uh, take huge pride in. So you had kind of uh, the, the the sport side of things sorted, the the music there as well that you you took a kind of hands on approach with. How did you make sure the skies were uh, also uh, covered? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got the RF. I approached the RAF and said to them, "Would you like to do a, uh, a jump?" I think, um, and they said, "We'd love to." It's a couple of grand. I was like, I "Have not got that." Anyway, we did a partnership with them, um, and they come and did uh, come and did a uh, come and did a stunt dive. About six or eight of them jumped out of a plane. We had a big Bournemouth Sevens flag coming off the back of them. We actually did a, a night dive. Oh my god, I forgot about that. They did a night dive. They put all the luminous um, sort of tubes all over them, and you saw them all come down at night. It was absolutely unbelievable. I think it was like eleven p.m. Going back to glow sticks and your glow club, sticks, clubbing, yeah, days. clubbing days. Exactly. It was. That's what. Yeah, for, totally forgot about that, Dan. That was a spectacle because you imagine you're on the beers. All of a sudden, you're seeing. I've got all the DJs to stop and say, everyone. Look up at the sky because no one knew it was happening. I looked up at the sky and they landed on the main pitch. 
I was going to say you don't get people that high in uh, clubs, but I think they're probably... I'm sure they do. (laughs) (laughs) They're in Ibiza. (laughs) When it it was all said and done and you did have time in those following weeks to kind of get the finances in order, was it a profitable event in the end? I got told that music festivals take seven years to break even. Mm, I've heard something similar. Seven years. I went into a different angle going to sport music festival. We made a small profit of a thousand pounds in year one. Did you expect that, or or did you kind of think I'm probably going to lose this, uh, lose a certain amount this year, but I'm planning on growing it over the years? No. Or did you want to make a profit that 100%. year? hundred yeah. percent. I wanted to make a profit. Had to make a profit. House was on the line. <laughs> you know, it cost three hundred grand to put on. There's no way I could have been. Oh yeah. Um, yeah, it made uh, 150 grand and you lost 150 grand. That just could not happen. That's my house gone. That just couldn't happen, Dan. It was just a no-go. I had to... But, and to get that relief of adding it all up at the end, what are we, what are we left with? Oh, my God. And it sounds, it sounds tiny, but on the bigger picture, you know, I could see the bigger picture. If you're doing that in year one and making a profit... Surely with tweaks and improvements and more people and, and more and more tweaks over for the next year, it's only become a, a festival that's going to become stronger. But with that becomes more comes more expenses for the following year. And that's a whole new that's a whole new story for, for 2009. But that thousand pounds there, did that start making you think this is a viable long-term business opportunity here? It gave me the confidence. Yeah. It gave me more confidence. It gave me more confidence because I know if there's 50% more people spending on the bars on that Sunday, it would have been completely different. Not completely different, but it would have helped, mm. you know? So then I knew the following year, because you signed a long-term contract, because it was a win-win situation with the club, that they wanted us and we wanted them. And it's exactly the same as it is today. We've been there 13 years and we've got another 10-year long relationship with these guys. Um, but yeah, but it, it gave me the confidence. And what it what gave me huge confidence was the feedback, you know? And, and feedback is really important to me. When you're putting on an event, you can't just put on an event. You can't go to a, you know, if you go to a restaurant and me personally, if I go to a restaurant and I don't have a good feed, I'll give them constructive feedback because I think it's really important. Mm. For me at the festival, I want constructive feedback. Where could, where were the improvements that we could improve for next year? And I've mentioned a few of them, you know, whether it's the catering, whether it's the bars, whether it's the, um, it get, the list goes on and on to the, the amount of security, whether it's the airport, <laughs> whether it's the police, whether it's council, whether it's licensing, you know, and, and yeah, there's, there was a hell of a lot of le- lessons learned. And that's why with the, in the events Institute that we're bringing out in, in December, all these lessons that I learned all back then is all going to be in the course, you know, so people don't make the mistakes or not even mistakes, they find the areas where it can be improved. So anyone who walks into doing an event these days, they go bang, 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 bang. Thank you, Roger and his team, for for handing this on a plate for us. Hmm. And we've spoken to others in, in the industry about what mistakes they made, and everybody has. And if you can learn from such people who have made such successes out of events, if you can learn from their mistakes, then you're in a pretty good spot to kind of go forward and yeah. and make your own mistakes yeah. but not necessarily the same that others have done. Yeah. I wouldn't even, I don't even call them mistakes. Learning opportunities. Learning opportunities. <laughs> Every day's a learning day. These are learning opportunities because it was the unknown. And what I did know is to build good people around me. 
So we mentioned in the last episode and this one as well about uh, a pound a man. Uh, talk to me about a quid a car. <laughs> as you know, I love a pound a man. Uh, yeah, car parking back then. We obviously, when you hire the sports club, Bournemouth Sports Club, you hire the venue um, and there wasn't enough car parking with it. So we had to go to the local farmer, Hugh Dempney, and um, ask the, where we can hire his field. Um, and just to take all the headache away, I just I, I met a guy on holiday and he worked in car parks and I got his number and I didn't even think about that. Again, meeting, Another holiday. And <laughs> meeting people at the right place and yeah. open up conversations and whatever. And when he landed back, um, I just said, mate, do you fancy running our car parks? I don't want the headache of running a car park. And said, um, he said, fantastic. So we, uh, he said to him, a pound a car, you keep a pound a car, everyone that comes in. But I knew it was a clean cut deal because all the staff car parking and all the catering car parking and all the suppliers car parking was in a different car park. So I knew this car park was purely people turning up to the festival. Mm. Um, you know, at the time, 2,000 cars. I can't remember what it was back then, but he did really well out of it. We did well out of it. He had all the headache and uh, that deal really worked for us. Did you walk around selling tracksuits and Timberland jumpers? Aren't <laughs> no, mate. You should have. I could hardly breathe walking around that festival with the amount of pressure on. <laughs> with a big smiley face. I was like a swan at the top and then just flapping underneath his <laughs> yeah. legs, you know? Yeah. So, was, did you feel pressure over the weekend or was it all excitement and adrenaline? Or um, It was pressure, real serious pressure leading up to it the whole time. Yeah. Um, over the weekend, it was kind of a relief just to open the doors and see what the feeling would be like for me. That buzz that I've got all over the years before with all the nightclubs and throwing the parties with people queuing up outside. Um, and I got that huge feeling a few times over this weekend because there was second influx of people would come, like I said to you earlier, that two, three, four o'clock crowd just piling. I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Um, but there was lots to do. There was lots of pressure on the weekend because everyone wanted to come to you because you'll make the final answer. You know, if something's going wrong or going on, they'll come to you. They want to know what decision you're making. Buck stops here. Buck stops here, yeah. And I had good people around me. I had your Allen's, your Sophie's, your Fleur's. My dad running all the bars. Um, I had all family members on the tills. I had family members behind the bar. I had family members on the uh, the front gate taking, you know, in, in the security box, uh, the money box taking the money. And just family and friends everywhere. And it goes a long way mm. and and looking back i'd like to thank all of them as well because they've been on the journey they've seen it grow as have lots and lots of people seen the festival grow itself and 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 very 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 kind with their compliments and obviously you get these friends and family of yours coming down uh, for that weekend helping out and you still get that today uh, but also you obviously learned over this this weekend the the kind of key element of having a team around you you can trust obviously your wife was part of that flair yeah. um so you can obviously trust her but then bringing in your, your dad and and other people you built relationships with did you take that through when you were thinking of hiring people in the future which you eventually had to mm. is that always in the back of the mind i need to be able to rely on these people trust yeah trust 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 it goes a real long way so uh yeah 100 percent. and i love finding new people you know, and they might be quirky, they might be different, they might not be have the, have the degrees, they might not have the education for, that. I don't care. I buy into people, you know, and um, there's a lot of people in this game, you've got to be a grafter. You know, there's nothing beats graft in this game and, and we're in a clever world now with the new marketing, what's going on, all social media, which we didn't have prior to this 2008. 
So something we've spoken about before, and uh, I don't know whether it's in the public domain yet or whether you've mentioned it in interviews before, is the Warner Brothers situation. Uh, <laughs> so I might have to beep out the name of the company, yeah. uh, but there, it's a, a major studio um, who own a lot of different product lines within the, uh, the media world. Uh, but you kind of had a, a clash with them to do with a logo. Is that right? <laughs> yes, I did. I did. And that was... Uh... That was pre-festival, pre-year one, 2008. Um, when we were designing the Bournemouth 7's brand logo, um, I just thought, what's the biggest logo in the world? Superman. So why can we tweak this logo to, for it to be a 7's? So we had the Bournemouth 7's and our logo was a tweaked version of the... Ins inspired by... An inspired by version <laughs> yeah. of Superman. So, you know, I thought this was genius idea. I was thinking, great, if, if people can relate to Superman, they can relate to Sevens. And again, going back to brand association, there's nothing, nothing going for the big guns, I guess. And uh, brand association was some of the biggest in the world there. But um, I just went for it. I wasn't thinking too much, if I was honest, if I was honest with you. You know, I didn't understand the whole, oh God, the lawyers are going to be after you and whatever. I just like, right, let's see what happens. People are going to see this Superman's logo over here. All the girls and the lads were promoting with the Superwomen's outfits and the Superman's outfits running around Twickenham and I ran around different cities, handed out flyers and posters, and it was just like this kind of tweaked version of the Superman logo yeah. everywhere. And um, I remember, and I let, I come home one day, uh, and it must have been I don't know four in the afternoon. I've been out all day, uh, and I got home, and then I just remember seeing this really fairly big letter in really expensive envelope. And it had a rubber stamp on it on the top right-hand corner or top left-hand corner. And it was a Warner Brothers stamp. I, I know what your thoughts were immediately. They want my life story rights. Yeah. They want to make Dodge the movie. <laughs> I thought, oh, God, no, no, no. God, how on earth have they found out about this? To open it up, and it was really expensive paper. And it had a letter, <laughs> it had a wording in there. Um, Dear Mr. Woodall, and this is at my house because we didn't have offices back then. Dear Mr. Woodall, I can't remember the exact word, da, 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 da. you're using the Superman logo. We have lawyers from all around the world looking for people like yourself, um, tweaking logos, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to be taking you to court unless this gets changed immediately or something along those lines. can't remember the wording, but I literally, literally my heart dropped. It sunk. I was like, oh, geez. Straight away, there's like five. I was in my, I was in, I drove to James Golding's house. who was my designer in Southampton at the time. And we were there at three o'clock in the morning designing a new logo, which is the logo today. <laughs> yeah. But what I did do is I phoned up immediately that lawyer and just told him the truth. I'd had no clue about this. I had no clue that there'd be lawyers' letters. I had no clue. I've changed it straight away. Apologies on my behalf, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He was really nice, in fact. He said, look, please just take it all down. And I remember him saying to me, God, you've done a good job on promoting if that word spread around the world that quickly. Mm -hmm. So I was quite, I was quite, it was quite a nice feeling, in fact. If, if studio bosses are hearing about your uh, festival, someone must yeah, have Yeah, it was, kind, it, it was kind of that. And uh, the word got out very, very quickly. And we're obviously doing a good job in the marketing of it. So, yeah, that got, all got changed. But literally for about 24 hours or 48 hours, it, my heart had sunk. Because I didn't know what was around the corner. I didn't know what Warner Brothers were going to say, were going to do. I didn't know what they're going to clamp on me. I didn't know whether they were going to just be like, right, we're going to the, we're taking you to court. You know, I didn't know any of that. So 
And obviously, we've spoken uh, before about how important brand is and mm. and having a, a strong brand. You having to change a brand that you kind of cheekily used mm. the idea or concept from somewhere else, but but was the word was getting out there, and suddenly you have to tweak that and change it. Was that was that a lot of pressure added from there? Yeah, or? yeah. It was more finances because you guys go and print another hundred thousand flyers because mm. I wasn't going to muck around with them. I wasn't going to say, oh, I've got another. Just use those flyers, everyone. It'd be fine. We'll be fine. We're fine. It's literally, this was serious. And I knew it was serious. And he was very nice on the phone, but he was serious. Mm. <laughs> uh, you had no chance, effectively. You're had not, no not going to beat Warner Brothers. No, no, I wasn't going to beat Warner Brothers. But the funny thing is brand association and the word spread very quickly. So in my mind, in my little cheeky mind, happy disruptor, I was uh, thinking this is a good thing. And interestingly, we went and got, that same year, one and got one of the, another big company on board as as a as a sponsor, one of the biggest companies in the world, you know, gaming companies, uh, mm. Nintendo. So lots went on. I just when, when I've had a brain dump and and you actually look back and say what actually happened at that festival from start to finish, the whole lead up, it was crazy to think what we were going to put on with no experience. So the experience I had was I knew how to promote and I knew how to throw a really good party after you know, thousands of parties all around the UK. So that's, oh, man, <laughs> God, it's, it's, it's stressful talking about all of this. <laughs> Looking back at all this, Dan, it's like, wow, how did you manage to get through that? And more importantly, how did my wife support me? She was there. She supported me like a rock, leaving her job. She's not a risk taker. She was just there from day one. And she's, you know, what well, must have put that poor woman through, you know? <laughs> I hope you've apologised. Yeah, my, many a t- yeah, yeah. But at the end of the day, it's it's still going today, and that risk was worth taking. Yeah. Um, so whether Fleur those early days did a calculated risk, or whether she just blindly said yes, go for a dodge. Yeah, I don't know. But. Yeah, she just supported me massively. Mm. She wasn't a part a promoter or an events person or whatever. But for her to leave her job, and for her to say yes to remortgaging the house, the emotion that I put that poor woman through, I, I I'm. I'm sorry. <laughs> if that's not, you know, I'm sorry to put you, really sorry to have put her through that, Dan. I, I really do mean that. But she's an absolute rock, you know, and, and she thanks me now for putting her through that. Yeah, it was worth it at yeah, the end of the it day. Was worth so it, yeah. As yeah. much as you can apologise for what she went through at the time, yeah. uh, I'm sure she's, you know, happy with where it's it's got yeah. you and, and, and Fleur as well, because you're in a position now where you can look back and say, God, that was tough. Um, but but it's worth it. Yeah, that was really really tough. But do you know what? It got tougher. <laughs> Two thousand eight was just the start of the story. Mate, that was really tough. But geez, it, it got. To, do you know on top of all this, which I totally rack in my brain now. On top of all this, all the pressure leading up to it, all the pressure over the weekend, the pressure for the two weeks after because you didn't know the finances, what what it looked like. We got married six weeks after that festival. My God, can you? <laughs> You know, the, two years in the planning, and we got married six weeks after. Did uh, Flair organise the wedding? I take it. Yeah, she organised the wedding, but she that was a lot of pressure as well. Mm. You know, and um, it was a two dayer in Wales, and it's been emotional, Dan. <laughs> <I bet. laughs> it was emotional. So you're now at the point you're you've delivered your first festival. You're married. Uh, now you've got now you you've got to start thinking about festival two. Where do I start? Mm. Where did you start? Well, after the wedding and after the festival, 
I actually felt like I was a professional footballer playing in the Premier League <laughs> and broke my leg. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's how it felt because the following day, the phone just stopped. Imagine you're on a high. I'm on a high, I'm on a high. People, 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 people wanting a piece of you, cutting deals, bringing everyone, trying to make the, the event happen. And all of a sudden, when it finished, it just stopped. And that was a really eerie feeling, I have to say. It felt like no one cared about you. You were gone. And for me, my mindset was like, well, what happens now? Because when you're putting on a yearly event, it was like, geez, you've, you've, when do we start for the next one then? You literally start the next day. How can we get this festival, which has got legs, it's got something there, how can we tweak and improve it for 2009? And that brought huge other different pressures down because you are having to invest even more money to make that event even better because you're wanting better of everything and more of everything, which then it becomes even more finances. Mm. And when you're getting more, you know, when you're bringing, when the expenses are even more and more and more, you're needing more people through the doors just to pay for those expenses. I, I wasn't aware that that was uh, the feeling you had at that point. Um, I, I knew you'd t spoken about the elation of the feeling straight after the festival. Mm. I didn't realise there was a low point where actually it feels everything's, everything's happened now. Yeah. It's kind of the calm after the storm, but yeah. not in a good way. It, it's like you said, the phone stopped ringing. It's, you hear other people talk about when you've achieved what you can in a sport, everything else is kind of a, never lives up to it. Is yeah. that what it felt like for a little yeah, while? Yeah, definitely, mate. It felt very lonely. Wow. It felt really lonely. Being an entrepreneur, if you need to get hold of me, you can get me at Eventful Entrepreneur. Like we have today, it doesn't feel lonely because we're constantly creating new ideas and new stuff and bouncing and bouncing ideas. And But back then it felt really, you know, you felt like you were, on, you were, you, you were on your own. It was just you and, you and your missus. Um, and it was like, we didn't know what the next step was. Was there ever any doubt that you were going to go for a second festival? Never, not one bit of doubt in my mind. Uh, same with Fleur or? Same with Fleur. Because we knew the atmosphere we created. We knew the feedback. We sensed the feeling. We sensed the buzz, the vibe. We knew that the music was right. Listen, it wasn't all right, don't get me wrong, but we knew people left there with a great taste in their mouth, Dan. And when you put on a party and people leave with a great taste, you know they want more. Mm. You know they're going to tell 10 people. They know they're, they're going to spread the word. The marketing is now feeding itself. Yes. You deliver and then it, people talk about yeah, it. Yeah, I agree. 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 And I also knew that Facebook was so new and I was on Facebook 24-7 setting up groups, getting kicked off Facebook, going on Facebook under different names to kind of create more groups, push people into this new Bournemouth Sevens. And it was just a numbers game then. Yeah. It was a numbers game. I didn't care if I was getting kicked off Facebook. I'd come again, relentless. I'd come again, I'd come again because this was about pressing, pressing buttons. And everyone getting to know about this. And how can we take this festival to the next level? How can we have bigger sponsors? How can we sign bigger deals? How can we sign sponsors for three years? How can we do get more celebrities in? You know, how, when we move to the bank holiday, what does that mean? The move to the bank holiday means we can put massive screens up because it's the Guinness Premiership Rugby Finals on our weekend. It's the Champions League Finals on our weekend. It's the London Sevens on our weekend. So all of a sudden you've got another aspect to our festival, which was live sport that people could watch as well. You know, but it brought huge amounts of pressure on 2009 for many, many reasons. Well, that feels like a natural place to stop. Uh, so we'll leave uh, the next steps, including more legal worries, uh, David Goliath battles and some more highs, lows and pressures within the business. 
If you want to hear more like this, as well as interviews with some of the biggest names in business, entrepreneurship, events and sport, make sure you subscribe and also leave us a cheeky review while you're there. I'd just like to say, Dan, the amount of reviews that we've got in the past 10 days has been mind-blowing. Yeah, it really has. Yeah, really. I'd like to thank everyone. Um, and we read all the reviews and it really spurs us on to bring you more content and more real-life business stuff like this and uh keep leaving the reviews and um if you want to get hold of me please get hold of me on linkedin or instagram you can get me at eventful entrepreneur yeah the reviews and subscriptions really help us obviously reach other people that might be interested in this so if you're enjoying it and you think other people might do uh it'll it'll help other people uh, see us on their feed so uh really appreciate that and like you say some of the reviews have been really really kind and it's just nice to see them rolling in isn't it just love the positivity, really do. And um, we don't know where this where this podcast is going, Dan. But it feels like we're on on we're going somewhere. We're enjoying it. So as we're long, just as the as main thing. Here. Don't matter if anyone's listening. <laughs> we'll just keep going. I hope you, I hope everyone else is enjoying it. <laughs> yeah. Great. Well, Dodge, thanks again for sharing your story, and uh, I'm looking forward to doing this again. You're a good man. I really uh, appreciate it, Dan. Thank you, mate. Thank you. <laughs>